podcast of the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. This is our opportunity week by week that Paul Harrell and Dominic Aquila have to bring you the top 10 list that uh, were chosen by the readers, just naturally reading the Aquila Report in the last week. And uh, we tally up the numbers and they produce the top 10. And we do present this list uh, to you. It'll be out on Tuesday. This is uh, July 18. And on July 19th, the uh, list will be uh, sent to your mailbox if you are on our mailing list. If not, you can register online at theaquilareport.com. So, Paul, we're looking forward to what we have as a more diverse list of uh, uh, articles this time, but some stick together and then others are quite separate. So it's yeah, gonna, it should be an exciting week. And, you know, at the top of the list has to do with, uh, you know, Revoice, Greg Johnson, uh, as well as the potential remedies that the PCA General Assembly has, you know, put forward to the presbyteries. So uh, it's going to be a familiar discussion uh, towards the beginning of the list, for sure. Exactly, it will be. So, Paul, why don't you read the uh, top 10, beginning at 10, go through 6, and then I will read 5 through 1, and then we'll start our discussion. All right. So, number 10, we have Kevin DeYoung, once again, writing the good news of limited atonement. The good news of limited atonement. Number 9, John Horvat, how childhood innocence strikes terror into drag queens. Number 8, Philip Ryan, writing my reconstructed faith. Number seven, Brad Isbell, back on the top ten list. Questions for PCA officers on offices. And then we have coming in at number six, Carl Truman, once again, his piece entitled Christians Should Rejoice Over Dobbs. Okay, good. Number five, The Purity and Peace of the Church by Ryan Beasy. Uh, is number five. Number four, a response to the notion of, quote, reformed Catholicity uh, by Charles de Espaville. Number three, a plea to Missouri Presbytery from a fellow presbyter by Jim Shaw. Number um, uh, two is exploring Overture 15 from the PCA General Assembly by Joe Gibbons. And then number one, is the number one is do uh, what to do about Greg Johnson by Brett Foster. And that's where we begin. And uh, to set this up, I think that most of the regular uh, listeners to uh, this podcast, as well as readers of the Accord Report and aware of what's been happening in the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America for the last uh, four years, uh, know that things began to uh, get engaged the church uh, beginning in the July of 2018 with the first conference of revoice that was held. And um, so that the church has been working, discussing, uh, passing motions at General Assembly, Presbytery is sending communications to Missouri Presbytery where a memorial uh, church is a member and as well as Greg Johnson. So uh, there's been a lot of flurry that has um, been engendered by this whole discussion of uh, revoice. And sometimes it's even um, shorthanded by saying that revoice theology or doctrine. So now we're at the fourth General Assembly after, and uh, some things have happened that we'll talk about with overtures that have approved for this year for the presbyteries to deal with. 
and now comes Brett Foster, who is a ruling elder in the Westminster Presbyterian Church in uh, Tallahassee, Florida. And he uh, is writing uh, and asking the question what to do about Greg Johnson. Over the past four years, Greg Johnson and his allies have attacked um, disagreeable brothers in the PCA and the greater church of Christ with accusations of homophobia and hard heartless uh, heartedness. And uh, so he's challenging that as um, uh, in one pull quote here as an ordained PCA minister, uh, Johnson's participation in Revoice and his determination to embrace a gay lifestyle and culture has given comfort, uh, has been, has given comfort and aid to one of the great modern movements attacking the church and orthodoxy. Furthermore, he has continued to write, speak, and make money off his self-ascribed role as a gay martyr trying to help the misguided denomination that may still have time to care. And so in this article, Elder uh, Foster uh, gives some background data and then he sort of summarizes it with a phrase like a statement like this. Johnson has paid, played fast and loose with nuanced language from the day that he embraced Revoice and began his campaign for sexual understanding within the PCA. Johnson agrees that any desires outside those sanctioned by God are sinful. He is willing to say that sexual relations of any kind outside of marriage are sinful. He calls himself a broken man, a sinner, and proclaims that he is living a celibate life despite the fact that he struggles with sexual attraction for men. That is all well and good, but this owning of the concept that is there is uh, is a self sexual uh, sexual identity uh, separate from the sexual acts is out of accord with scripture. It's because of this concept of a different sexual identity that Johnson embraces a gay lifestyle without the sex in his clothes, appearance, and appetites. I deduce that this is what fuels his frustration uh, as he writes about the failures of uh, conversion therapy and slanders the collective church for being too focused on converting homosexuals to heterosexuals instead of just caring for them. And so he proceeds, uh, uh, Elder Foster does here, uh, to describe the, why um, Greg Johnson really is out of accord with the uh, the thrust, the main themes, uh, the ideas of the the theological underpinnings and biblical underpinnings that the PCA uh, has. And so he just asked the question, what is to be done with Greg Johnson since uh, his uh, Foster's position has been trying to convert the church and change it to accept uh, his perspective? And it doesn't appear that that is happening. Uh, in fact, there seems to be a great deal of pushback from it, as we'll see uh, in other articles that will be coming up. And so, Paul, this is um, interesting that this became his number one. I think it's uh, touching a chord in the lives of uh, the church and uh, is getting, you know, church's attention. Yeah. And, you know, uh, spoiler alert here. Um, the title is What to Do About Greg Johnson. And uh, Brett Foster's conclusion uh, towards the end of this is that it needs to be excommunicated. Um, and you you mentioned the part about his uh, uh, appearance and different appetites and things like that. But if we skip down here, there's actually he refers to scripture here uh, because scripture says he writes it is possible to not only restrain desire for bad behavior, but train our inclinations in a new direction. 
most of the epistles of the New Testament have a common pattern. We are reminded of our life before Christ, instructed in what Christ has done for us, and then told how to live as a new creature, born again and able to live for God. We are told to work out our salvation, and that the foundation for this new life is the renewing of our mind. That should be of great encouragement to anyone struggling with sexual sin, because the harbor of all sexual perversion is in our minds. And skipping down, but that is only part of the formula. The other part is to use our minds to discipline our bodies for their God-ordained purpose. Thieves are not only commanded to steal no longer, but also to work. Ultimately, they find pleasure in that work. Regarding sexuality, God demands that we make no provision for the flesh, and he commands men not to be effeminate or wear women's clothing. But in addition, we are commanded to act like men, to pursue manly things. I would encourage Johnson, he writes, to take this to heart. Instead of getting a spray tan and having a hairstyle and clothes reflective of the narcissistic and effeminate gay movement, Johnson should wear manly clothes, do manly things, and give no quarter to the trappings of gay culture. I have no idea if Johnson will ever have a sexual inclination for a woman or a desire for marriage, but I can assure him that this will never happen if he continues to live the way he is now. In fact, I would go so far as to say that continuing the way he is now will cause him to be much more likely to fall back into overt homosexual sin. It's no surprise to me, Dominic, why this was number one, because it speaks plainly to the elephant in the room. Right. Yes. Uh, and uh, Britt Foster is a ruling elder. Um, Sitting on a session, uh, concerned with uh, you know what would happen, you know, in his local setting if uh, something like this was taking place there, long in his presbytery, uh, what would they do? And so the what would we should do is that the presbytery should uh, take you know cor uh, corrective action uh, with this. So we'll leave it to the readers now to uh, peruse it, think about it, muse on it. Um, but it'd be a very helpful article, I think, coming from um, Brett Foster. Number two, continues at least in the area of one of the things we've talked about before, and that's uh, the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, they passed a, a number of overtures, two in particular, that uh, will be the four uh, presbyteries uh, that deal with and touch on this whole matter, again, of revoiced theology that has uh, risen. And one is going to be Overture 29, which we have mentioned in passing. We'll just uh, pass over one more time. But the title of this article is Exploring Overture 15 uh, from the PCA General Assembly. Uh, considering Overture 15 in light of the Westminster Standards, the PCA's own re uh, report on human sexuality and Overture 29 itself, and uh, this is written by Joe Gibbons, who is a layman, not even a church officer, really, uh, who is uh, stays very close and touch and follows the actions and the deliberations of the General Assembly and of his presbytery. And he is from uh, a member of the First Presbyterian Church in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So he, uh, uh, in this Exploring the Overture 15, uh, to set it up, he gives the background that we've already, some of which we've just said, uh, what we, this uh, last General Assembly uh, in June of uh, two, 2022, 
uh, passed a number of overtures. One of them was uh, Overture 29. The Overture 29 was approved by the Overtures Committee um, was and sent to the floor. It was approved by 90% vote. And basically what it says is um, officers in the Presbyterian Church in America must be above reproach in their walk and Christ-like in their character. Those who deny the sinfulness of fallen desires or who deny the reality and hope of progressive sanctification uh, or who fail to pursue spirit-empowered victory over sinful temptations, inclinations, and actions are not qualified for ordained office. So that's one, that's over to 29, that will be before the assembly. But he says, our, the question of what, what to do with Overture 15, because it's very more explicit in its detail, and, BC, and it's to amend BCO 7 by adding a fourth paragraph, so it'll be, if it's past uh, BCO 7-4. Uh, men who describe themselves as homosexual, even those who describe themselves as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy by refraining from uh, homosexual conduct are disqualified from holding office in the Presbyterian Church in America. And so uh, Gibbons in this uh, article says, you know, that's very straightforward uh, language. Uh, and so it's one that uh, passed just a little bit over 50% of the congregation, I mean, of the General Assembly over against the 90% for over 29. But here he's arguing that this is the one that really needs to be passed and taken seriously and that the church needs to make its uh, dec uh, declaration uh, very clear with regard to these things. He said it's almost as if the Westminster divines were present in the 21st century to hear argumentation of side B proponents uh, because he refers now to how they wrote larger catechism question 139. And it goes beyond re this uh, that question 139 goes beyond refraining from external sin of sodomy and pushes us to remember the innermost places where we must uh, be chased, our hearts and minds. The divines would not have allowed men who serve as church officers to envelop themselves in worldly desires and appetites uh, of the flesh as though they were not to be repented of, but instead uh, used as casual descriptors. The divines would have directed such men to continue to see Christ and to cast off what the world tells him about how he, he, his sin defines him and instead adopt what the Bible says about him as a new creation. And so in this thing, Joe Gibbons is urging the presbyteries to, um, to adopt and to approve not only 29, which appears that it gets a high level of support, but also um, uh, of no, um, Overture 15, which is the shorter, more direct one. So he concludes, the rapid advance of LGBTQ plus ideology uh, into broader culture, institutions, and indeed into the church has clearly necessitated this response. The PCA has arrived at a moment when we are asking ourselves, how does the church preach, uh, church preach not just gospel redemption, but gospel transformation to a listening world? One way is through its officers, the heralds of Christ's kingdom. While no one of side of this side of glory will see perfection, these men are recognized by and for their exemplary Christian character 
more so than other qualifications. Uh, remember Paul, as he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Hoja 15 seeks to apply this principle to the side B revoice controversy. So that's going to be quite a debate, and uh, it'll be before the 88 uh, Presbyteries of the General Assembly during this next year, and you can sort of be updated by this and how Joe Gibbons presents it to us. So, Paul, this is one that um, will engender probably more of the, most of the debate that will take place this year. Yeah, you know, and I'm kind of I'm discouraged by how many people are, are writing things like Overture 15, you know, it's going to fail or it's very likely to fail. It just doesn't have a chance. And and I'm sure they're right. I'm sure they're more wise than me, but I'm trying to be optimistic here because I I really think Overture 15 is. The, the most uh, straight, uh, no pun intended, uh, the most direct way uh, to to tackle this problem that has been facing uh, the the PCA and you know all of all of her members, and um, you know I mean I, I just I just think that that you know men who describe themselves as homosexual, even those who describe themselves as homosexual and claim to practice celibacy by refraining from homosexual conduct are disqualified from holding office in the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, you know, if if that were to fail and not get the votes, I think one of those would one of the reasons would be uh, some relative certainty that uh, you know congregations back home, uh, aren't going to know how individuals voted that might potentially fuel. But there's also a chance, I think, that there are men who didn't vote for this at General Assembly that might vote for it at Presbytery because of the way this came about. We need to remember that the this uh, Overture 15 was a minority report. And so there are some people who really uh, you know, want to trust the Overtures Committee. The Overtures Committee did not put this forward. This was taken out of a minority report. So some... Uh, some uh, you know uh, delegates want to respect that process, and and maybe that was one way that one of the reasons they voted against this. Maybe they will they'll feel differently when they go back home. Uh, you know I, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. It's all speculation on my part from a layman myself who's just you know on the on the outside of a lot of this stuff looking in. But to not pass this overture, to not specifically say men who ascribe themselves as homosexual cannot. Uh, or men who ascribe themselves as homosexual are disqualified from holding office in the Presbyterian Church to not pass that uh, to me says you uh, you could easily be saying that you are now for that or you are now somehow opening the door for that to be a possibility one day in the future. And I like Overture 29 as well. I think it does address the uh, the the chinks in the armor of the doctrine of sanctification that is preached in the in the PCA, and I think it does a good job at that. But to to not just directly address our problem, uh, I I think is going to I think it's going to upset I think some some folks who are gonna you know who are pew sitters who are going to wonder why this was so controversial. This should not be a controversial thing to do. Right. Well, that uh, brings us to number three, because it does tie into this, and that is a plea to Missouri Presbytery from a fellow Presbyter, this is by Jim Shaw, and he um, writes to basically an open letter to Missouri Presbytery, because that's sort of ground zero for this whole debate since uh, 2018, 
And uh, he basically is giving a plea to work together, restore peace and unity in the PCA, which would require that they being the church, the presbytery that oversees Memorial Presbyterian Church, which is the uh, church where uh, Greg Johnson is pastor, uh, is the pastor and to seek to bring remedy. So it's within their province to be able to uh, do something. He says, pondering the dangerous and uh, seemingly unquenchable division in our nation right now, it seems that uh, right now uh, the thought has occurred to me that that uh, sometimes men just say uh, to have just men just uh, have to slug it out. Boxers pre-fight, stare at each other and so forth. Anyway, he says that uh, basically this is the kind of thing that is basically happening in our church right now as we're trying to wrestle uh, through it. So the PCA. Uh, has been at a civil war for uh, the same number of years. It was in 2018 that a member church of your presbytery, referring to Missouri Presbytery, stunned the denomination by hosting Revoice, a side B gay affirming conference. Letters and articles were written addressing genuine concerns. Greg Johnson went on to speak a speaking campaign via podcasts, magazines, Twitter, and finally a book. And so what he uh, Jim Charlton is calling on them is to recognize that these things happen within the context of that presbytery and they are the most uh, capable and and prominent to be able to uh, deal with what what is taking uh, place you know at, at this point <clears throat> so the uh, so he calls on that presbytery to take the initiative and uh, deal with it uh, he mentions in uh, in uh, GA 2021, the GA have voted to pass overture 23, well over two thirds of the body now did. The overture clearly expressed the will of the nomination that a man not be allowed to serve as a church officer who possesses or professes to be a gay Christian, same sex attracted Christian, homosexual Christian, or the like. Uh, many in the PCA wanted their feelings expressed and they did so. Then, of course, two-thirds of the presbyteries didn't uh, vote. It was very close, I think, just minus uh, three or four uh, presbyteries. So now he's basically saying to um, or requesting Missouri Presbytery to recognize that we need to, they need to step up uh, to the plate and do uh, something uh, about it because it's within their purview to do so. And then he ends up with this. Uh, the fight has been long, tiresome, and costly. We have slugged it out, so to speak. It is time to shake hands, come together, and be one church with the same heart and mind, and is incumbent upon you, again, that's used the Missouri Presbytery, to rally together to restore peace and unity in the PCA, to strengthen the PCA uh, for the good of Christ's church. So um, it's a plea that uh, they rise up, own what's taking place within their boundaries, and uh, to deal with it for the sake of the uh, church. So it's an earn, heart earnest plea from one pastor to a whole presbytery. I thought this piece was very good. Unfortunately, I think he might have lost some of the progressives the second he wrote about General Robert E. Lee in a positive light. They might have just quit reading at that point. If, if, and if Jefferson they, Davis was also mentioned that way. Too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I was, but it, the, I, the sentiment of it was great. As a matter of fact, it got it got me thinking uh, just about the battle that's been going on and how uh, I, I would even argue maybe we haven't debated this issue enough. Uh, 
in in public. And I know every presbytery is different, but um, I've talked to some who you know talk about how we never seem to discuss the elephants in the room. And I've been thinking why. And this article kind of made me think, well, you know, I think sometimes people want to avoid the elephant in the room because tempers can maybe get high and it can bring you to the you know potential of, of sin or something like that. But I think I think I think that's a mistake because I think um, we're potentially avoiding some real opportunities for sanctification and 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 to 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 debate like gentlemen and to sharpen each other and to deal with the controversies head on uh, and not be afraid to do that because you know of of the work that that we're involved in. This is Christ's church. Um, and I think the other way, which is just kind of maybe not dealing with things, it maybe gets people to do things like the national partnership. And then it also, uh, you know, ends up producing potentially bitterness by just by just not allowing us to just really in a full fledged way, you know, let's let's uh, let's have this fight out. I mean, and I also maybe thought I, I agree with his sentiment here. I mean, if you look at it on paper, Jim Shaw is right. If you look at what happened at the last GA, if you look at what happened at this GA, the majority of the PCA is saying, we don't want this. We don't want, uh, uh we don't, we don't want to let the, 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 the homosexual agenda, uh, we, we don't want to cater to that in our church. And, and we don't want to deny what the truth of scripture says and everything that I just mentioned about, you know, the doctrine of sanctification and everything else. I mean, it has been, quite the uh, clear result, even though we failed to get the two thirds on those overtures last time, the two thirds of the Presbytery. So he's, he's right there. But I'm, I was also wondering, you know, maybe we haven't actually fought this hard enough yet. Um, but again, that's just my opinion. Well, yeah, no, and I think you're right. And I think over the, if, if you see, this is sort of a slow going thing. So using the analogy of the civil war, uh, regardless of what names are attached to it, uh, it, it, we there is a sense in which that it's happening in the country. And as the debates continue, there has been more and more clarity that has that has come out um, and precision and understanding exactly what's at stake here. And so I think to one point that you were alluding to, I just want to put a finer point on it is this that but the BCA is basically saying through its General Assembly and then in other uh, places as well, that this the PCA uh, is not and will not be a side B church. And as we said, side B yes. is defined as, uh, you know, something like uh, you, you, you can be a homosexually uh, um, attracted Christian or homosexual uh, Christian, uh, same-sex attracted person, uh, but you're celibate, you're uh, maintaining your, uh, you know, but you're maintaining your sexual identity as homosexual, not changing. So it violates the whole principle of uh, that of our doctrine of sanctification. But so that we can allow people like that who take those promises uh, to be officers. And what the church is basically saying is, no, we we can't accept that. That is a principle that will not uh, sell uh, with us because it violates uh, other core principles within our confessional standards. So I think that's where the the by having had this debate over time, so it may be slow, but it's helped to define terms um, much more clearly. So the PCA 
is not and will not be a side B church, at least not as it's presently constituted. Okay, well, then we come to number four. It takes us in a different direction, uh, a different kind of battle, a response to the notion of reformed Catholicity. Uh, this is uh, by Charles uh, de Espeville that is responding to a statement or article entitled William Perkins, who is one of the Puritans, on keeping it Catholic. Now, the article, the original article on keeping it Catholic by Perkins uh, basically is using the word Catholic in its broad generic term as universal. What are those things that are universal and true of the Christian church over its uh, history from the New Testament days until the present? And uh, so I think that, you know, language, especially English language, can change so that some words that uh, have meanings in certain contexts by another 100 or 200 years, you know, it, it, it begins to, um, it morphs into something else. So what I think is happening here is that Charles uh, Despeville in this uh, is sort of spinning off in his response to the word uh, and to the name Catholic and uh, seeing it now is specifically Roman Catholic. I think the original author was talking and reflecting on what Perkins was saying is that what are the things that are universally uh, received by the church, that is the Catholic, i.e. universal church. So, but you can see in this response, part of the reason why we, um, what, why the adjective Roman needs to be in front of Catholic. Uh, if we're, when we say in the Apostles' Creed that I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, that it is a small c in the sense that it's not referring to a denomination, it's referring to the universal church. Uh, but there's a baggage that he brings to this, Charles does, uh, and because he came out of a very strong Roman Catholic background, and he saw the uh, excesses and the faulty theology that once he came to Christ, and then from there uh, became more convinced of Reformed theology, um, the, he felt the liberty that the Reformed theology brought into his life. And uh, so I think that's part of the reason for this, um, you know, response in uh, just the word Catholic itself uh, just was the, uh, you know, the, the, the spur that uh, ignited the, uh, the fuse that ignited the whole thing. So the it's it's interesting because at least it sets off uh, historic reform thinking and theology with uh, historic reformed I mean, uh, Roman Catholicism and that which is what he basically is uh, fighting against. So it's interesting. So if you want to know why the two churches can never, Roman Catholicism and Reformed theology cannot coexist in the same place, uh, here you would at least have it, you know, in this response that Charles de Espeville uh, gives us. So yeah. uh, just a, a, you know, good background, but um, just realize that Perkins wasn't arguing people back into Roman Catholicism. Yeah, this was good at pointing out just a lot of uh, what's happened in the, the past of what he calls Romanism, uh, but also what the Catholic Church has done here recently. Uh, he writes, but Romanism does not stop at saying there 
they are monotheists. Two, it goes on to hold that members of any religion also worship the same deity. Quote, those who, through not fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience. Those, too, may achieve eternal salvation. And then he goes on to say even the Vatican there doesn't stop, doesn't stop there. It also includes Old Testament Canaanite deity, Moloch. In October of 2019, the Pope dedicated a huge statue of Moloch and placed it at the entrance of the Roman Colosseum. In this, in the same year, he performed the dedication of a, excuse me, of a uh, Paca Mama, a South African fertility goddess. One can see a high-ranking cardinal worshiping it, and there's a link to that article. And I clicked on it, Dominic, and it does take you to a cardinal uh, participating in some sort of uh, walking in a circle with these other. Uh, uh, I guess, native uh, people to where they were in, in South America. And uh, there's these little clay jars. And, and like, anyway, it's it's very odd. And, uh, and, and there's a translation of what the guy is saying in the background as this cardinal is walking around, you know, worshiping these, uh, you know, idols. Uh, it's pretty disturbing. So this, this is a good, uh, this is a really good uh, article, of, you know, bringing really just, how um the differences let me just say that the differences between uh protestantism and uh roman catholicism uh even today right uh and uh that uh, brings us then that's from number four to number five uh an article by ryan Beasy, um who they called the purity and peace of the church and he says the PCA can have no peace until she contends for purity. And <clears throat> so here in this uh, piece, uh, but uh, Brian Beasy, in light of all the discussions we've already just had on uh, Revoice, uh, Missouri Presbytery, Overtures 29 and, and 15 and, and the like, that uh, the question is, how do we really find a real sense of uh, peace and unity? Um, and it has to come at the point where we also have to uh, contend for the purity that is of doctrine. So uh, Beasy then walks through um, where some of the difficulties are. Uh, so he refers to the historic three marks of the church, the gospel rightly preached, that is biblically, uh, sacraments rightly administered, and God rightly worshipped. And then he takes each one and explains <clears throat> what uh, those things mean. And then moves to some of the, the areas in which distortions can come and have come. Uh, for instance, he mentions the woke distortion. Uh, throughout the history of this nation, countless horrific and wicked acts have been committed against vulner the vulnerable. However, it's some quarters of the PCA correcting social wrongs and signaling sorrow for injustices have usurped the proclamation of Christ and his gospel, which then is one of the areas in which it's difficult to have a, a peace together and unity without there being a recognition of what uh, how to restore things in the right way. He also mentions the uh, revoice downgrade. Now, the word downgrade has a historical connotation uh, that back in the late 19th uh, century, uh, one of the larger uh, or main issue or large issue, let me put it that way, that uh, Charles Spurgeon dealt with 
was known as the downgrade controversy. It became a very uh, difficult thing, not only among the Baptists, but uh, uh, quite a few churches in England at the time, where there was a downgrading, a lowering of the understanding and definition of what the gospel is and how people uh, can be called to repentance and faith in uh, Christ. And, and that took great toll in the church and even on uh, Spurgeon himself, as he recounts in some of his own writings. And so now we have a downgrade with regard to revoice. And we've already mentioned that with regard to other articles, we won't um, uh, re, you know, bring that part up again, but that it, it just, that it is uh, creating um, a great deal of tension within the life of the church. And we're going to have to come to some agreement of definition of terms is because purity requires that we agree um, not not just agree to disagree, but we have to agree on what is affirmative and what the, the church is going to hold to. So he concludes here, the problem of the lack of peace in the PCA is because we disagree regarding matters so essential as the three core marks of the church, which remember it's biblical well, worship, uh, the, the um, the uh, proper discipline and uh, the administration of the sacraments, <clears throat> worship sacraments and gospel. In order to have peace in the PCA, our officers must be united around the truth of scripture, which is summarized in the Westminster standards that we all uh, to which we all subscribe. And we must have the integrity to further the peace of the church by preserving and strengthening her purity uh, regarding worship sacraments and the gospel. So that's the plea within this article of saying the um, the calling the church to the purity and peace. So you need both uh, in order to have uh, peace working together. Uh, this uh, Ryan Beasy, once again, doesn't disappoint. Uh, he writes, other issues persist. There are PCA sessions continuing to subvert the book of church order and presuming to observe the Lord's Supper by the uh, by the innovative means of intinction rather than two distinct elements bread and wine as required by the bco and westminster standards and witnessed in the scripture uh the com the communicants receive some sort of sacramental mush of mixed bread and wine <laughs> this just made me chuckle the way he uh, the way he described that the problem of intinction in the pca is twofold first it misunderstands the Lord's Supper and displays a craving for innovative and unbiblical methods for doing churchy stuff. Second, it reflects a refusal of such congregations, i.e. sessions, to submit to the BCO. Absolutely. <clears throat> Important that we uh, hear these terms and that, that you can have uh, Purity until there is peace and peace with that until you have purity and then unity flows out of that with there's a binding together uh, and melding together of what is uh, true. So that's a good point. That's number five. Number six, uh, Carl Truman comes in with uh, Christians should rejoice over Dobbs. And, and there's a reason it's a background to it, to which uh, Truman uh, deals with. This is in first things. Uh, the Dobbs decision has revealed fault lines in American Christianity. These fault lines lay just below the surface for laid below the surface for uh, a long time while, uh, but are now clearly exposed. As long, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, as long as abortion was legal, 
this by the Supreme Court decree, it was possible to identify as pro-life, but keep the commitment at the level of theory. One could hold pro-life views, but not be pre, uh, perceived as a threat. All of that has now changed. To identify as pro-life post-Dobbs, that's after the decision to uh, say that uh, Roe v. Wade is not constitutional, it goes back to the states, is not simply to hold an opinion uh, many uh, regard as wrong. It is to be a part of an act of political and social oppression. And predictably, many Christians are feeling the need to, quote, nuance their relationship to overturning of Roe. And then he refers to some of ways in which the uh, the uh, nuancing was begun. He refers to the National Catholic uh, Reporter has excelled itself in this regard in terms of the nuancing. The um, strangest argument in its pages was made by Father Thomas Reese. He studiously avoided any expression of gratitude for the decision and said it is a result of American domination by big corporations. And the response uh, of big business to Dobbs would seem to indicate this is the case. His indicate his case is, to put it terribly, a little overstated. And he refers to gives other examples uh, of regard. Uh, <clears throat> he also uh, refers to the Sojourners, which is one of the Protestant side, the Sojourner magazine, could scarcely contain its anger at the decision as it sees as enabling yet more violence against black women's bodies. Of course, Dobbs will disproportionately affect black women because abortion is a scourge, scourge of the, American, um, the African-American community. But to claim that bodies are in danger and then advocate abortion is to buy into the serious myth of pro-abortion lobby that the baby in the womb is not a body but merely part of the mother. So that goes on. So after <clears throat> referring to all these, is the point is, should we uh, celebrate uh, the fact that Dobbs has been approved by the uh, uh, Supreme Court as opposed to nuancing? He says, I've always assumed that the LGBTQ plus movement would provide the trigger for the fracturing of American Christianity, not abortion. Yet post Roe, the early signs are that the latter is performing that task. That is the uh, post Roe uh, decision. The coming months will be fascinating and I suspect rather depressing to watch. Uh, when it comes to abortion, especially after the Dobbs decision, Christians face a choice of social respectability or religious fidelity. And the Christian commentary already seems divided on which way to go. Uh, com excuse me, I said commentary, com uh, commentariat. So <clears throat> the uh, that's so there's a whole new way in which things are being fashioned. In, you know that word nuance comes up a lot, Paul. And uh, just uh, we want to say, well, yes, on one hand this, but then on the other hand that, and you have to say the pretty soon we become uh, four or five handed individuals because we have so many hands other hands to uh, look at this. And uh, so tr uh, Truman is highlighting that instead of rejoicing that the that that, uh, that there's nothing in the Constitution that gives the right to abortion, so the matter belongs rightly to the states, it defaults to them, um, which means that technically abortion can still be practiced depending on whatever each state does. Um, there was just you know, hue and cry uh, of those who uh, felt that it's something that was a, a right that 
had other implications, which we won't go into right now. So anyway, it's it's going to it's an interesting debate. And you can see, by the way, the fact that uh, Truman mentions I always assumed that the LGBTQ plus movement would be the one that would pry the trigger to fracture uh, American Christianity. Maybe he's saying you have to rethink that. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 really uh, fascinating. Uh, you know, he mentions uh, Russell Moore and his silence. He mentions Christianity Today and how no one is is wanting to rejoice over this. And it's uh, really what it is. It's the equivalent of, of somebody in a crowd after David cut off Goliath's head, just being like, you know, David, was that that's a little too much. Think of the Philistines and their hurt feelings, you know, instead of, you know, uh, commending David for doing what he did uh, after he slayed the giant. And that's that's where we're at right now, where we're we're at a place where there are fault lines between Christians in, in, in America. We have been praying and fighting, investing in pregnancy resource centers uh, to stop this human sacrifice that is abortion since 1973. You know, 60 million children. More than that, if you count the children, you know, the potential children that those that the children would have had by now. Um, and it is an absolute uh, it is it is just our country is covered with the blood of innocence. And thanks to uh, God allowing the highest court in our land to overturn something that re- really still allows it in certain states. But, hey, we will. We'll, that's another hill we can climb. But is uh, is is saving children's lives. And, and yet we have our you know, revered evangelical Christian, quote, leaders, end quote, that aren't wanting to come out and uh, celebrate this. It, it certainly is uh, very telling. And, uh, you know, woe to those who call good evil and evil good, you know, I mean, and that mm-hmm. and that's that's where I stand on it. And Carl Truman does a really good job, I think, of, of bringing out their silence and their silence is saying something they may not think it is, but it, their silence is, is actually speaking loud. It is. Uh, It's interesting, by the way, since we refer to the uh, Presbyterian Church in America, one of its earliest resolutions since it's coming up on 50 years and the early in the mid 73s, PCA started in 1973, uh, was uh, one of its first statements that uh, they believed it was necessary to speak to was the matter of abortion. And that was just soon after the you know, the Supreme Court had, had passed, uh, approved the f- first uh, Roe v. Wade decision. So that was in January of 73. By December of 73, the PCA was formed. And within a year or two after that, as we, the, the I think evangelical Christian world was awakening to what is this thing, because evangelicals had not kept up with some of the social constructs and and was taking place in the in the culture. So the PCA soon came to that. And one of the first statements it made was giving a very high view of human life and giving a biblical argument uh, of, of why it's important to preserve life and and so forth. And so we were, you know, sort of stamped as a, quote, pro-life uh, church. And I don't even think the word pro-life is being used even in those early uh, days of the debate. Usually it takes time for things to mature. And that's when it came along. And then there were repeated times when the uh, PCA General Assembly, uh, Assembly, various ones, would also reiterate 
the original stance. And it was interesting that the day before the Supreme Court uh, issued its decision on Dobbs to uh, say that Roe v. Wade no, no longer is constitutional, that on the 22nd, that was on the 20. The 21st, on the 22nd, the general the court came out with its decision that I, let me make sure if I get my dates right. 23rd, no, yeah, the 23rd, that's right. It, it, the the general assembly, one of its last actions that it took was an overture to reaffirm, recommit itself to being a church that would uh, fight for true life and then pro life. And the very next day, the Supreme Court did what it did. Uh, the point is, is that this, that is the, the one of the marks or not the marks, but one of the identifiers of the PCA has been that it's really committed to the principle that life is precious and it's God's ordained from moment of conception to natural death. So that just as a historical norm. And so there was great rejoicing, I believe, on the part of um, at least many within the, the PCA yeah. and other uh, evangelical uh, denominations as well, and and I'll well, just uh, and I'll just add yeah. one one more thing uh, that is just a phenomenon here while we're talking about it in the in the wake of the overturning of Roe versus Wade, uh, liberal women are now going on sex strikes, so they're doing the right thing for the wrong reason, and then you have liberal men who uh, read an article where a search for vasectomies is up uh, like a nine hundred percent. Uh, where liberal men now are are uh, I don't I don't know you could make an argument that this will be uh, better for the gene pool or worse for the gene pool but it's, it's certainly having a remarkable effects so far it is okay number seven uh, Brad Isbell comes in with an article questions for PCA officers on offices uh, he begins the fact that a significant number likely hundreds of Presbyterian Church in America congregations have female deacons or deaconesses or uh, present females as holding the office of deacon or the imaginary office of deaconess is indisputable. Uh, also, beyond the question is the fact that a number of PC churches do not ordain male deacons, uh, pres presumably to create a unisex egalitarian board of deaconing persons, is also beyond dispute. So that's the predicate. That's what uh, Brad Isbell is uh, saying that um, the P in the PCA, we have a statement in the BCO chapter seven, uh, second paragraph seven dash two, that says, according to scripture, these offices are reserved for men only. And uh, so there's been quite a bit of debate on whether or not the office of deacon being a different of a different type. It is an office of the church, but of a different order than the office of elder uh, it can allow for women. And every manner of possible way of bringing, discussing it, bringing overtures to the General Assembly for the last uh, 20 some years has been presented. And in every case, they none of, uh, none, in no case was they ever approved. Uh, and so we maintained what it was. In fact, in 2011, we did add that uh, phrase uh, in uh, chapter nine, which is a chapter on deacons, that uh, the last sentence was added that it, it is possible for the session uh, to uh, appoint uh, godly men and women to assist the deacons in the carrying out of their ministry and their duties. And uh, that's all it's that's as much as 
you know, was changed uh, in the book after 20 years debating it. So basically at that point during all the, you know, early 21st century so far, that no matter how we, much there was an attempt to bring things about in the PCA, uh, it uh, to change who could be a deacon, male and female, uh, was not successful. So churches took it on themselves, and that's what he referred to a significant number, likely hundreds of Presbyterian Church American congregations have what they would call uh, women uh, deacon or deaconesses, uh, or maybe even women that then meet with the men, uh, but they won't ordain the men, then sort of a the protest, uh, sort of like uh, going out and getting the vasectomy part that we were just talking about. Uh, and we're not going to ordain just men, so we'll allow unordained men and unordained women to meet together and form this deacon. So he asked some questions based on that. That's the background to this. Has anyone considered, this is a number of questions, we won't read them all, uh, the incremental but inevitable uh, effect of allowing quasi non-ordained officers in the denomination? So that's going to be the first thing is what are what are the implications, what is the fallout and um, the end game or the unintended consequence or maybe intended consequence. So he's asking that question. How many members of PCA churches with female deacons and quotes or deaconesses, a term with no set meaning in our polity, uh, know that the female deaconing person are not actually officers? If members are confused, it may be because some churches use the same nominating training and election process for females who are called deacons or deaconesses as they do for men who are part of the diaconate. And I would suspect that in that's asking that question uh, <clears throat> that Brad Isbell is basically saying that the explanation is not given in its historical place. And so most of the members are, uh, would probably not be aware of the fact that the Book of Church Order doesn't allow for that process at all. Number three, what is the long-term effect of allowing churches to forego the ordination of one of the two officers our polity requires? So the BCO does require that when uh, men are elected as ruling elders, that they be uh, ordained and installed, and also the same thing in principle for deacons, that they be ordained and installed. And if you now withhold ordination for one of the offices that our book has clearly said is an office, church office, that requires <clears throat> ordination and installation, and now you withhold it because you don't agree that uh, because you want to make sure the women are involved and until that happens, you're not going to do any, then what effect does that have? So you can see it goes on with those kinds of questions. Um, the <clears throat> um, the should and then he ends up the last question should we seek again by overture to address the unordained diaconate and this effort failed in uh, 2019 and it gives the the link so you can read it it should be noted there is nothing to presently prevent presbyteries from inquiring into the state of their church's diaconates they can uh, do so if they uh, choose to do so so final thought it is difficult for the pca sessions uh, to, which pushed the Book of Church order envelope on these issues uh, <clears throat> to respond to criticism and questions, knowing that both the spirit and letter of the PCA polity is, uh, in some cases, being violated. Uh, making biblicist arguments 
about one verse in the New Testament about Phoebe in Romans 16, or appealing to the practice of other denominations is about the best that they can do. Uh, do not the vows taken by elders regarding the constitution of the PCA and submission to brethren require that we all of us follow and abide by the polity of our church in letter and in spirit until such time as that polity is changed through ordinary constitutional process rather than that their drip normalization by tolerated violation approach of ecclesial uh, antinomians, no matter how winsome and missional they may be. <clears throat> so good question is, uh, I don't like it. I'm going to do it. Uh, the church, maybe the church will wake up and become woke like I am. And, but until then, we're going to go forward in this certain way. And the, and I that that's one of the things that I really appreciated. That final thought there is really good. You know, he just pointed out that the BCO is is very explicit on this issue, and you know, making biblical or uh, biblicist arguments about Phoebe. That 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 is beside the point. When this is what the rules are. This is what we've all agreed upon, and it's now being subverted through, you know, uh, I, I don't know what you would call it, uh, BCO sleight of hand, maybe something like that. Um, and finally, though, Brad Iswell says, finding PCA churches with female deacons or deaconesses or females listed as officers is as easy as visiting a few websites. Some churches even admit to commissioning, not ordaining their unisex diagonates, an example of a church leader admitting that their church's deacons are not ordained by the laying on of hands can be found in Tim Keller's 2009 PCA General Assembly seminar with Ligon Duncan. Um, and then uh, and then I'll just add this. I thought this was funny uh, on, on Brad's uh, bio at the end of this piece, because this uh, Aquila report, if you click on the hyperlink, it actually sends you to Presby Cast's uh, substack. It says Brad Isbell is a ruling elder at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, co-host of the PresbyCast podcast, board member of Moore in the PCA and the Heidelberg Reformation Association and a co-editor of the Nicotine Theological Journal. <laughs> anyway, I always love the the comedy of, of Brad and and the PresbyCast. So, yeah, you, you like because he's a native of Jonesboro right there where you are. Oh, uh, yeah, where I am. Yes. Yes, <laughs> he right. is. Yes. That's good. Okay, number eight, um, my reconstructed faith by Philip Ryan. This is a statement where the, the reconstruction um, uh, or de there's a focus today on deconstruction of faith. That is people who are questioning their salvation. And it's not just going through questions about uh, assurance of salvation. But it's basically questioning the whole thing. And so you deconstruct, you reevaluate, you redefine uh, things. And uh, so you keep your faith intact in one sense, but you deconstruct it to so that it becomes somewhat meaningless, uh, no longer the, uh, the total commitment that one had before. And so he begins with that background after ever-growing list of controversies of threats to Christ's church, the disturbance of deconstruction looms large. Over the past uh, two years, we have all seen and listened to many stories of deconstruction from authors, musicians, and even YouTube personalities. Sadly, these stories are celebrated even by some Christians, uh, the same Christians 
who then mock those who raised alarm over deconstruction. Uh, one, um, uh, what I don't often hear are stories of those who are uh, have reconstructed their faith. And since I couldn't find many, I thought I would offer my own story of reconstruction after I abandoned Christianity for progressive Christianity. So he went through this process himself and has um, come back um, to to the faith. So uh, Ryan, uh, Philip Ryan then proceeds to explain, you know, his his story gives his testimony and which he now has his faith reconstructed uh, where he. Uh, he talks about all the, the, the path. And so it's an interesting story for you to read. This is, comes off of, of Reformation uh, 21. And uh, so it, it's a fascinating tale uh, that he gives in his own testimony. So I would commend this to you. So it, he says at the end, if you are a minister and have a young man or woman who appears to be wandering down the path of deconstruction, I hope that the, or, or you're that. I hope that this article will give you some ways to engage them. If they start reading progressive authors, say you'll read uh, them together and that you will recommend the next book to read. Continue to encourage them to attend worship and have community with those in the church. As Swinnock put it, uh, we don't want them to be found without convoy. Finally, pray earnestly uh, for them to be kept from deception and the lure of cultural relevancy and acceptance. Pray that they would walk in the ancient paths uh, where the good where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. So, very helpful article, very uh, open uh, testimony that uh, Philip Ryan gives to us. And uh, this right now is, like I said, as he also affirms that uh, celebrating deconstruction. It's almost like, oh, I was a Christian, but now I'm not. People are out there cheering it on. Well, you're being so honest and open. Well. And so we celebrate that. And he is saying that's really not something to celebrate. It's something to lament and uh, work now ahead of time where you can be aware that it can happen. And pastor, elder, faithful Christian, come alongside of those struggling in any way like that and minister to them. Yeah, it, this is a great testimony. And especially in this world that we live in right now. Um, all of a lot of the indoctrination that that is going on with our young people, and how you know what our our God's uh, grace, mercy, and care for all of us is bigger than that and more powerful than that. And for example, he talks about uh, how he kind of started on this this path of deconstructing, and he said when we were done with the inventory, the professor showed us a pyramid of oppression. She started at the bottom with the most depressed identities and worked her way up. This was what I wanted. I wanted to speak truth to power, fight oppression, and labor for liberation. However, after the class, I felt empty and bothered. You know, that's the thing, like, with a lot of this stuff right now, we are just creating other systems of dogma, other systems of worship, to worship anything but the one true God, who is the only one who can actually fulfill us, because it's what we were made to do. We were made to worship God, nothing else. And uh, this is uh, this testimony is such an encouragement uh, to how God uh, how how God's sheep hear His voice, and uh, it, there's you know everyone has different paths and and and, and different experiences in in way in in their uh, testimony, and this is a unique one. And uh, in the age of uh, in all of our 
children being indoctrinated in many different ways. This is an encouraging thought and an encouraging testimony. Right. Well, another one, uh, number nine, is how childhood innocence strikes terror into drag queens. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this one, but this is just an article that uh, caught my attention to just say that we're seeing more and more of the uh, the grooming of the young generation, many generations probably, but the younger ones with uh, drag queens coming into uh, public libraries and uh, school libraries to do readings and uh, trying to, in essence, uh, uh, present themselves as just uh, common, ordinary folks in the church who happen to men dress up like uh, uh, women and they read uh, stories to them. And so John Horvath in this article just said, let me deal with this. Uh, children have something special that terrifies the drag queen. And what is it? The quality of childhood innocence. Uh, the innocent uh, child instinctively and implicitly knows what is good or bad, beautiful or ugly, like the innocent child announcing the emperor's new clothes. He recognizes the drag queen as ugly and sinister as a wicked witch in a fairy tale. The child does not bend to the politically correct opinions and says what he or she thinks. So um, just something, you know, to read into it. But he does, uh, John Horvath does give other uh, warnings that that we need to be aware of, that the, uh, the even with this funded gift, they still have to, we still have to protect uh, young children from um, the, you know, innocence uh, from the, these um, being in position where they're groomed uh, and everything is seen as right, uh, that we have that responsibility within our family structure, uh, not to uh, place our children in harm's way as we instruct them in the ways of all. Thank you, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4 through 6, uh, where it talks about that you shall teach them along the way when I'm rise up, when I uh, lie down, when I'm along, along the way. In other words, in every aspect of life, we're instructing with the with what is true so they can bind those things, not only in the foreheads uh, through external uh, means, but also in their hearts. So their hearts are captured. So just a reminder here that uh, there's a lot of things that are happening in culture that we need to. Uh, inform our children on, but there's one sense in which this article is saying that just the innocence of the child, like that uh, child, little boy who said the emperor didn't have any clothes on, and he wasn't supposed to say that because they um, they see it like it really is. So very helpful article remind us of uh, the importance of in uh, giving and teaching and creating an atmosphere, filling the heart with God's truth. Yeah, um, anti the, and anti-gospel, this part stuck out to me. Thus, the drag queen disproportionately insists on the story hours. He is an anti-missionary. His anti-gospel calls for the uh, abolition of all moral restraint, freedom for every license and sin. He targets the most vulnerable. He will not tolerate opposition. Yeah, I would encourage all of us uh, to to know what's going on with the drag queen story hours at your local libraries. Uh, don't assume that your library is somehow immune because there's a even in my local town right now there is a giant controversy over uh, the, the during Pride Month the books that they display for kids those sexualized books about being gay and just what we're doing uh, sexualizing kids at a young age and it's just horrible and 
you know what, you know, we, we have a right to uh, still, you know, for the time being, have a right to try to shape what our local communities are like. And we need to uh, continue to do that uh, through prayer and through action for sure, because uh, I mean, you know, it's, it's one of those things, but you know, you refer, you refer you to the previous article, what we just said, you know, even amidst, uh, amidst all of this evil and this attempted indoctrination, uh, God is still powerful and God uh, all powerful. And he is, uh, you know, there are, there are people who are still uh, continuing to be saved. And that is something to rejoice even in the midst of all of this. Right. And then uh, number 10 by uh, Kevin DeYoung on the question of um, the good news of limited atonement or uh, definite atonement, as some would say, uh, which comes out of the L of TULIP. And the L is uh, referring to the, te- the limited atonement that teaches Christ effectively redeems uh, from every people, uh, not only those he has chosen from eternity for salvation, and he says that that is a truth that Scripture teaches. And now, what, where is the 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 good news and the satisfaction and the hope that that uh, gives uh, to us? Uh, so, particular redemption, he says, is often considered a more favorable a more favorable term because the point of doctrine is not to limit the mercy of God, but to make clear that Jesus did not die in the place of every sinner on earth but for his particular people. This is why John 6 says Jesus came to save those the Father has given to him, and why Matthew 121 says he died for his people. The doctrine of particular redemption is worth defining and defending because it gets to the heart of the gospel. Uh, Should we say Christ died so that sinners might come to him, or Christ died for sinners? Uh, did Christ work on the cross, make it possible for sinners to come to God? Uh, or did Christ work on the cross actually reconcile sinners to God? In other words, uh, does the death of Christ make us savable or does it make us saved? And he argues, of course, that it makes us saved. The atonement is particular uh, for us. And the comfort then is that it secures us and anchors us to a truth of Christ's redemption that uh, God didn't do a certain amount or Christ didn't do a certain amount. And now it's up to us to complete the task, but he did it a hundred percent for those whom God had chosen before the foundation of the world. And that is when we come to faith, what God anxious our souls and commits us to Christ. And so there's great comfort and hope as we live in this present age until Christ comes again. I like the Spurgeon quote in here. We are often told that we have that, um, excuse me, we are often told that we limit the atonement of Christ, Charles Spurgeon observed, quote, because we say that Christ has not made a, a satisfaction for all men or all men would be saved. On the contrary, Spurgeon continued, we say Christ so died that he infallibly secured the salvation of a multitude that no man can number who through Christ's death not only may be saved, but are saved, must be saved, and cannot by any possibility run the hazard of being anything but saved. Excellent. Good words to end with in this week of uh, the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, Paul Harrell and Dominic Aquila who come before you to Uh, Go over the uh, top 10 articles from this past week. Uh, So tomorrow, the July 19, when you're um, 
newsletter arrives in your inbox, you will have these 10 articles. You can click on them. They're hyperlinked and ready to go. And uh, you can review them. Hopefully, if you're listening to this beforehand, it gives you a heads up as to what's coming. If you're listening afterwards, uh, you can interact with um, with what we've said and, and in how you read things, and that's fine. Uh, but we just encourage you to, uh, you know, share that. And if you please forward the uh, this pod, the URL for this podcast to others, as well as the newsletter, as well, to others who may not receive it and they can uh, click on and uh, register themselves for the newsletter to come to them weekly. Uh, let me tell you that July is uh, one of two months that we use in the year to uh, help to raise some funds to help maintain the ministry of uh, the Equal Report. There are some things that are part of our overhead and uh, we thank the readers for being faithful in their standing with us, supporting us, not only in prayers, and reading but also in your gifts so thank you very much and so until we see you the next time may the lord bless you keep you